here today. Let us pray and ask for God's blessing on His Word. Heavenly Father, grant us by Your mercies to receive, believe, and live according to Your Word. Please let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in Your sight. We ask this in Your Son's name, Jesus, who reigns with You in the Holy Spirit, world without end. Amen. Let us once again hear today's text from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 37. The Gospel of our Lord. You have heard it, that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, being reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, that you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her already has committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except for sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, For it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. And so as we hear God's word here, we know that this is in the narrative of the Sermon on the Mount. That all of these texts that we've been studying, they build one upon another. And this has reminded me as I considered this of a, of a storybook that I read as a child. And in this storybook, and, and I really tried to find it so I could cite it and tell you all about it, and it's a great book. But there's this, there's this father, and he's married, and he's got a gaggle of kids. And he's a baker. And, and what he does, and I can remember these pictures vividly. I even called my mother this week to see if I could find the book, and she could remember the images as well, but to, to no avail. We don't know the name of this book. 
But, but as we think about this, the, the, the father's a baker, and there's some sort of crisis, and mom and dad have to go, and, and so they travel to take care of something, and, and I think there's some sort of financial problem, and, and they're trying to figure out what to do. And, of course, they go, and there's all these children at the home, and this is the home of the baker. So what happens is, is that people start coming to the house. We need our bread for the day. We need our bread for the day. And, and the kids are like, oh, what do we do? What do we do? And they said, okay, you know what? We're going to bake the bread. And so they begin to get all the ingredients together, and they begin to try to make this bread. And one of the things that happens is that all these kids are looking at their hands, and they're saying, oh, Papa's hand is so much bigger than mine. Okay? And so they, they, they look at the yeast they're putting in, and, well, if, if Papa's hand's this big and my hand is smaller, how many of these do I need to put in? Right? And then that child turns, and the next child comes, and he thinks, oh, i got to put some in. They'd watch their dad do it. Well, all of these ingredients go in there, and a lot of yeast goes in there, and they put it in the oven, and they start baking, and it starts growing. And you can see <laughs> that the bread is coming out of the oven, and it's starting to spill onto the floor, and the kids begin to back up, and it continues to get bigger. And bigger, and it's baking for some reason. Maybe it's a hot day, too. I don't know how all that's working. But it's baking in this process. All the way to the point where the children have to retreat out of the house. And the bread is pouring out the windows and coming out the door. And, of course, you know what happens right here. It's at this moment that mom and dad show back up. And dad is looking at the house, and he sees the bread out of the windows and coming out of the the front door. And he's like, I, I don't know, I don't know what to do. And he sits down, and he has that look, okay? My kids would call it the, the look of disappointment, right? And he puts his hand on his head, and he just naturally thinks, oh, you know, what am I going to do? And he grabs a piece of bread off, and he eats it, and it's very good. And so they begin cutting it off, and as they sell out that this bread that has filled up the whole house, Right? This resolves their, their problems. I, I want us to, to understand this. Just as that bread filled up the house to the point where it was coming out, Jesus, through his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, is going to fill up and expand and help us to clearly understand the intent of God's law. He's going to fill it out. Jesus said this, um, we heard this at the end of last week, where he says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy it, but to fulfill. Jesus today is going to make our understanding of God's law full. He will grow the law to its fullest. Jesus takes the letter of the law and puts its full intent and illuminates it for us. By the way, why did God give us the law? Romans chapter 7, verse 7 tells us, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known what sin, known sin, except for through the law. For I would not have known what covetousness, I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. The law was a means to grace and mercy. If the Lord had not given us the law, we would not know our sin. 
or our inability to deliver ourselves from all of our depravity. Jesus tells us that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. What is Jesus talking about? Well, you see, the Pharisees were continuously looking for exceptions to the law. Parents, and those of you who have parents, when we give our children a rule, they pretty naturally look for all the exceptions. Remember when you were a teenager and your parents gave you rules and you began to focus on the letter of the law? By finding every exception to the law that we can find, but still obey the rule. Do we do this? Do we search for these exceptions? Do we try to find every way to make things different because we love it? Because we love the law? Or do we do this because we hate it? Like the Pharisees, we have often lived our lives in this way. We do not rejoice in the truth of God's law, and we neglect the words of today's call to worship from Psalm 119, where it said to us in verse 7, I will praise you with the uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. Jesus is giving the true meaning of righteousness. The scribes and Pharisees were supposed to be the experts in the law. Jesus is not setting the law aside, but rather expounding the law into its fullness. Jesus is providing not just the true meaning, but also the implications of the law that have been lost by the negligence of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus is making God's righteousness plain through the law so that we can see what real righteousness is. By the way, it is not a standard that you cannot meet. And I'm speaking specifically to those that are in Christ. Jesus expects that we can be obedient. We can follow his instruction. By the power of the Spirit, his grace breaks the dominion of sin over us. Jesus is saying that this is how we are to live as God's, a citizen of God's kingdom. When we live according to his word, men will see these good works and then they will glorify the Father in heaven and the kingdom of God will continue to grow and fill the earth with his glory. Jesus' death and atonement for our sin delivers us and keeps us from sin. Jesus breaks the cycles of sin that enslave the world. Now what Jesus does is he goes into these passages and he quotes the Old Testament. And then he explains it. We need to understand, as Jesus will tell us here, that anger doesn't stay put. It will grow and consume us if we don't turn it in to redemptive actions. Jesus said this, you've heard it said uh, you have heard it said that it, by those of old you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause 
shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave that gift at the altar and go your way. We are first to be reconciled to our brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, by no means, that you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. There are three sections here in Jesus' explanation of the sixth commandment. One, that anger brings judgment just like murder. Secondly, that intentional provocation to incite others to unrighteous anger requires your reconciliation. And third, that we should quickly find reconciliation because the judge may rule against you and punish you. Jesus first quotes this commandment that we're not to murder because of the danger of judgment that is in murder. Jesus makes a clear connection between anger and murder. We can see that anger is the root of murder. James chapter 1 verse 14 tells us this, But each one is tempted, and when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed, and then when the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and then sin, when it is full grown, brings death. But Jesus wants to see this commandment in its fullest. Murder is hateful and destructful. Jesus wants his disciples to know that anger is not just the seed of murder, but also that ungodly anger is hateful and destructive. We need to clearly understand that the wrath of man does not bring the righteousness of God. What is the just cause that Jesus is concerned with here? What causes does God have for anger? Is God simply full of wrath? Or does his wrath provide a way of salvation and redemption? We can see both in the prophet Jonah and the prodigal brother that they wanted to be angry for what they perceived as injustice. Jonah wanted to see the idolaters in Nineveh receive God's wrath and judgment. Jonah is indignant when he finally, under much duress, goes to Nineveh and preaches repentance, and the Ninevites repented, and they did receive God's mercy. Jonah is angry because he wanted God's justice, but more importantly, he wanted God's vengeance on Nineveh. We see in Jonah chapter 4, this is Jonah, he says, So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Can you imagine being so angry with someone that you decide that you don't want to see them to be reconciled with God? That's, in fact, what Jonah's complaining of here. This is why he fled. This is why he was not going to go and make reconciliation. We see this also, likewise, in Luke chapter 15. The prodigal brother is angry that his lost brother is not brought to destruction, but is forgiven and restored as a son. 
the brother will not even go and enter into the place of celebration. Now, I just want to point this out. What's the place of celebration? Is the final celebration not in the presence of the throne room of our God Almighty? He doesn't want to enter into the place of celebration. Why? Because he finds it repugnant that the dead have been raised to life by the forgiveness of sins. Now here's the question. Do you use anger as a means of redemption and reconciliation for those that you are angry with? Is anger one of the tools that you use to address people when things go wrong? Do you incite others to anger by your words? Jesus tells us that we're in danger of judgment. Whoever says to his brother Raka, that's, that's you, you know, you're, you're empty, you're, you're a fool. You're going to be in danger of the council, but whoever says you fool will be in danger of hellfire. He says, you know, it, the point here is, is you can't just poke people because you're mad. That's not right. If we're doing that, we have to repent. Here's the thing. Are you looking for justice and vengeance in the lives of others? Do you become angry with your spouse, your children, your neighbors here at church or in your community? What about your neighbors at work? We know that there is godly, righteous anger. Jesus, we see, even has anger. Is this righteous anger what we are using in these situations? We know that in Ephesians chapter 4, it says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Here God is instructing us that we can be angry and not sin. How do we do this? Sadly, most of the time, our anger is irritable, self-seeking anger. We should not justify our anger, but should seek to repent and to be reconciled with others. We need to see that there's a time frame given on your anger and wrath. That is your own self-righteousness and exasperation. God in this verse is telling this, that when you have become self-righteously angry, that you should repent and seek reconciliation in the same day that you have sinned. When we do not resolve our anger, it gives Satan, the accuser, a foothold in establishing bitterness and resentment in our lives and relationships. When we give it a foothold, it will not stay the same size. Bitterness and resentment will become larger and larger until when it is grown fully, it will bring death to ourselves and to others. There is a difference between God's anger and man's anger. God uses his anger to bring repentance and redemption. Man's anger is self-serving. We will not let our anger go. We demand that God go and give others their just dues. Sometimes this takes on the form of our unwillingness to forgive. God instead teaches us to use our anger as a borrowed tool from the Lord for redemption. Romans chapter 12 tells us this, beginning in verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil. 
have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Generally, our anger is not righteous anger. It is not an anger that is focused on bringing others to reconciliation to God. We must not repay evil for evil. We must, as far as it depends on us, not others, are to live peaceably with all men. We should, through immense, humble gratitude for God's gracious forgiveness and redemption by Jesus Christ, not to demand vengeance for that which belongs to God, but instead, by repentance and reconciliation for our sin, point others to the mercies of God. Stop holding on to your anger, but instead be merciful and kind. God will in turn turn this into fire upon their heads. Practically, Jesus is teaching us that a barrier for us to approach God is broken relationships with our neighbor. If we seek forgiveness with God and we seek reconciliation with God, it is simply profitlessness. If we do not make amends for our offenses against others, Jesus, in teaching his people to pray, says what? Forgive us as we forgive others. Right? And then just in case he wasn't sure that you got that, after he says that, he comes back around and says, no, I'm really telling you that you must do this. Because if you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven so truly there is a barrier if we won't forgive others if we don't go to others for forgiveness we 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 can't come to god by the way it's important to recognize because he talks about if you have a gift on the altar you know go home right you got to remember this this means that we need to take pause and reflect on our day and everything that's going on because when, when we think about it these people in the time of Israel, in Jesus' day, if they were going to the temple, if they were going to the place to offer a sacrifice, right, they, they actually had to, like, get up and go somewhere, and they had to walk there in most cases. It wasn't a, hey, I'm going to throw on my, my, uh, my jacket and run over and see Dave or John or whoever. I can't, couldn't pick up the phone. and just, No, I had to plan. I had to be purposeful. I needed to look each day at my life and say, what is it that I have done? And what is it that I have not forgiven of others? Because I know that I'm looking for forgiveness from Christ. And I'm going to go and I'm going to show up. And in our case, we come here and we confess our sins together. Right? We're going to ask God for mercy here. We have done that today, corporately. But he says, hey, look, you need a plan. You need to take an evaluation of your life each day. What does this look like? We need to understand this is really important. Neglected grievances can have irrevocable consequences. People of God, time may be short. For you, 
or for someone else, or your anger or your lack of forgiveness may be driving others away from God, stop it. Therefore, we should repent to others, for both our time and their time may be short. Next, Jesus continues to bring greater fullness to the law of God by looking at the seventh and ninth commandments. He says this, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Jesus makes it clear that the intent of your heart matters, not just the outward thing that we do. You see, when we gaze with sexual intent, This sin produces lust, and this is adultery. We must become drastic in dealing with our lust and dealing with the things that that we allow in our life that provoke us and cut it off, get rid of it. We see that lust in Exodus chapter 20, that lust combines both adultery and covetousness. Lust is giving a gaze, a place to harbor with sexual intent. People of God, Jesus is very direct that the person lusting and not the object of lust is the problem. Men, women are not the problem. For centuries, pagans, rabbis, and unfortunately even some in the church have made women out to be the problem. This is a false idea. Women do not have a magical, irresistible power over men. You know, I was struck when watching a a missions film this past year where in in this tribe, in a remote place, any time a man would die, for whatever reason, they would hold this, the pagans would hold this religious ceremony and then they would cast lots and see what woman's evil spirit left her in the night and killed this man, regardless if he was sick or old or anything. And then you know what they would do? They would take that woman out and kill her. Those are pagan ideas that women are some evil power in the world. Listen, women are not the cause of evil, and they are not the cause of our sin. Just like the anger mentioned in this passage, Jesus is not asking if you are prompted by others to sin. Rather, he points out the sin of the hearer. All people, especially Christians, should consider their dress with a level of modesty to glorify God. But men, your problem is not beautiful women, but rather that you are looking at women or images of women for the purpose of stirring up your sexual desires and gratification. Now, I just want to pause here. I don't want to neglect the fact that women can't fall into this too, because you do. But I I know that it, it tends to be a problem where men lean in too much harder. 
but this is important, that we should not read things, look at things for the purposes of stirring up our sexual desires and for our own gratification. Sometimes we believe it is worse for us today because there's all this access all around us. Don't be deceived. The ancient world was full of sexual images. All you got to do is go to, to any, any pagan excavation site and dig down, and what do you see in the drawings? It was everywhere. Shoot, they even had it in their, in their religions. All kinds of sexual immorality. And that was just something you were supposed to participate in. You don't have it worse. About the only thing that you've got that's different is maybe you can bring it into your room and think nobody sees it. But God sees it. We need to know that Jesus is showing us that the sexual immoral have no place in the kingdom. If your undisciplined lifestyle is an occasion of sin, and it is... You have to part from your sin. Jesus declares that we should act radically to repent and remove this sin from ourselves. You know, sometimes we live like our sin is as important to us as our eye or hand. And that somehow we can't possibly live without our sin. If we must, we should bring surgery to our lives to deal with this lust. Repent and know that this can mean severing relationships, severing activities, changing jobs, even giving up the use of TVs, computers, and smartphones. Now, I know we live in an age where we think that that's impossible. But if you have to wager that I can't handle that right now until I grow and mature and discipline myself before God, cut it all out. Listen, it is better to be a ditch digger for Jesus than a banker with all the money in the world and perish. This seems radical. It seems too extreme. But is it? Jesus is saying that it is better to go through life with less money, less entertainment, or maybe even less of everything than to spend your eternity in hell. Too many people count the cost of obeying Christ and say the price is too high. Remember Jesus' conversation with the rich young ruler in the book of Mark, chapter 10? And, and it says this, Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. When a person realizes that they must lose everything, it is true evangelism. As Bonhoeffer has said, Jesus bids you, come to me and die. I think in the context here, we should remember that Jesus doesn't take up the cross and die for himself. But he goes to the cross so that we may be reconciled to our Father. Likewise, we are certainly benefited in following Christ, but it is not simply about our own salvation, but that others may see our obedience and our good works and glorify the Father in heaven. 
Now Jesus moves to a, a related issue of divorce. He says this, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. People of God, hardness of heart causes divorce. Jesus here takes a hard and firm stance for marriage. Jesus lays down a very narrow reason for divorce. The reasons for divorce have become very wide in Israel and certainly here in our own country and culture. Again, the teachings of the Pharisees and scribes were full of finding whatever exception they desired so that they could divorce. They ignored the teachings of the law and prophets. You can see all of these laws that Jesus is teaching is building one upon another. If anger rules you and you seek no forgiveness and reconciliation, the bitterness and resentment will build. This leads to self-righteousness and excuses to lust, to commit adultery, and to be full of covetousness. Left undealt with, divorce is on its way. Not just, not for a just cause. No, divorce is on its way for your own sinful desires. And all of this hardens your heart. Romans 5 tells us this, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of righteous judgment of God. You know, later on we see in, in Matthew 19 that the Pharisees come to Jesus. And of course, at this point, they're trying to find any way they can to trick him, trap him, embarrass him, so that they can do away with him. And they say, can a man get divorced? And Jesus says, no, we have to look towards creation. He says, so then there are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And, of course, they go on and say to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Jesus points to the first marriage at creation. Here the Pharisees are looking for any exceptions, not because they loved the law or loved their wives or even loved God. They were self-seeking. They ignored all that God had done for them. God calls Israel, and all through the history of the Old Testament, God calls Israel his wife. The whole of Israel's history, God is bringing wrath so that Israel would be restored and would, be repent, and, and would repent. God in Deuteronomy 24 does say that a certificate of divorce could be given because the wife has found no favor. What is that word favor? It's grace. Because they had found no grace. Of what? Uncleanness. That's uncovered shame, improper behavior. I think we can clearly see this as understood as sin. These men did not want to give grace to their wives, so they took what they had and they said, okay, I'm not going to give you grace. I'm for any reason. I'm just going to get rid of you because I don't like you. They're not offering God's grace. This is sinful. They had truly become un 
an ungrateful servant, unwilling to forgive when they had been forgiven so much. They have ignored God's clear words. In Malachi chapter 2. And God says this, Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? People of God, stop dealing treacherously with one another. Stop holding on to sin. Stop not granting forgiveness. You must grant forgiveness. You must. You must. You know, it's interesting in all of this, we're going to pop into oaths here, and you're going to say, what? What does this have to do with anything? Remember, they're looking for excuses not to keep their promises, their oaths before God to their wives. We are, as the body of Christ, to be truth-telling people. Tell the truth. Again, the Pharisees have looked for exceptions. What they do is, is try to qualify one oath as being different from another. And Jesus says this, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths before the Lord. But I said, You do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. You see, the Pharisees were attempting to make, to make oaths non-binding by not using God's name. They figured if they could get something kind of closely associated, like the temple, maybe that's too much. Maybe we should say by the altar. Well, well, maybe that's too much. Let's, just, let's make an oath just to the horn on the altar. Yeah, yeah. We, if we do that, then I'm not really obligated before God to keep that, cup, that, that oath, that promise. No, no vow may be used to invalidate God's word or to evade his law. No vow of, no vow of marriage, no vow of any sort. James reminds us of this in chapter 5, verse 12, where he says, But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall in judgment. People of God, keep your word all the time. Do not, when you, excuse me, keep your word all the time. When you don't, seek forgiveness and make it right. And I have to tell you this. When I'm dealing with people in situations where trust has been broken, 
where, where vows have been violated, where marriages are struggling, one of the things that I tell them is keep it simple. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. A lot of times, a lot of this envy, bitterness, and resentment comes out of simply not keeping your word. If you say you're going to do something, do it. And by the way, men, women, children, don't fall into the trap of thinking, if I don't say anything, if I don't respond, if I don't say yes, and I don't say no, that somehow that disavows you from having to do anything? No. Keep your oath. Build trust. Let your yes be a simple yes and your no be a simple no. Keep your word all the time. And when you don't, be quick about it each and every day. Ask forgiveness and make it and make it right. Make it right. Because of God's abundant gift of redemption, we should be generous with acts of redemption. If we live in a manner that Jesus teaches us, we will truly be salt and light. Just for, for a moment, I want you to just think about this. If just the 110 people or so that are in this room, if we were faithful to these four points that Jesus is talking about, would this revolutionize the people we're in relationship with, the communities that we live in? Absolutely. We would certainly be salt and light. We would be that city on a hill that God says will cause men to glorify God. In this way, we become agents of God's redemption in the world. We become an instrument of life instead of a fountain of death. We should turn away from evil. Let us pray. Father, help us to believe your word. Help us to turn away from evil. The evil that you have pointed out in our lives. The sins of our thoughts, the sins of our words, and the sins of our actions. We confess them before you. And pray, O oh Lord, that your will would fully heal us and forgive us. Thank you that you have promised exactly that and more. So restore us into the ways of life, the ways of joy, and the way of peace, so that we can live faithfully before you, showing forth your praises to a world that desperately needs to see your glory. Hear our prayers and work in us to that end. For Jesus' sake, amen.